Joffrey, Cersei, ill and pain to hound. They all think I'm lost, but I know where I'm found. I'm the blood in the north when it all comes down. My word is my bond, and my bond is my word. Valar, Daenerys, all men must serve. See as the raven flies, and time slips by. Valar, Mobulus, all men must die. And we're back. And we're back. And today it's me and Mel in her lovely boardroom. And we're doing this one sober as I'm trying out the new recording setup. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit um, lower key, I would say. I mean, I'm still entertaining, but the liquor helps. It helps a lot. <laughs> it really does. And I wouldn't call this boardroom, what did you call it? Um, it you didn't use the word magnificent. I did. Uh, I'd call it... Uh, Utilitarian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could dress it up next time. Yeah, if you like grays and shades of gray and... Fifty Shades of Gray? Um, I did not see that movie. Neither did I, nor did I read... Well, I read 10% of the book. Really? Um, as a book club recommendation. Which 10%? The beginning? Ugh, it just one of the sex just, scenes? Just the tip. <laughs> no, just the beginning, and it was awful. I hated it. The woman had clearly never read a book before, let alone written one. Uh, it was abysmal. The writing was awful. And it's like she'd never met a 20-year-old or been a 20-year-old. Her description of what it was like to be a 20-year-old and what the music of a 20-year-old would be was, it was, I mean, it's really something. If I'd read it thinking that it was a parody, maybe I would have enjoyed it more, but I was reading it as a legitimate erotic novel, and it was terrible. Oh, good to know. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, newsflash, this is my book review for a book that came out, what, five years ago? Right. Yeah, that I read 10% of, so, Yeah. Somebody, multiple people tried to get me to read it, and I couldn't get into it. <laughs> multiple people? Yeah. You couldn't get into it? Yeah. That's all just double entendre. It is. It really is. And then, you know, I think of things like the brother-sister love on Game of Thrones. That's actually much more erotic to me than oh, God, yes. anything that I read in that book. Or I think I've watched about 20% of the movie. No, not even 20%. Because it is on, I think, TNN or something right now. So I've flicked yeah. by and seen it and just almost been shocked at how uninterested the actors seen in the material and each other. So for something that's supposed to be all about how obsessed they are, because you know, it started off with Twilight as Twilight fan fiction. Yeah. I mean, at least if you go back and watch any of the Twilights, they at least seem into each other. Well, based on my understanding of the material, I think it's more... Um, it's not a book about passion. It's a book about intensity, which might explain the way that they react to each other. It also may be that they're just not good actors or they don't have chemistry. I mean, I've seen Dakota, uh, I want to say Fanning. Give her a couple of years. She'll be, in, she'll be in something like this. Although she was also in, in Neon Demon. So, no, that's L, isn't it? That's L. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's L Fanning. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah, the, uh, she was in this movie called The Bigger Splash with Ray Fiennes and um, Tilda Swinton. Which she played a young, uh, waifish, sexual thing, and she was okay, but she can't really overcome her Dakota Johnsonness. Right. Well, um, wasn't Jamie Dornan even on? I think the first season of Once Upon a Time or something. Oh uh, yeah, he was. He was. He was the Huntsman, of, wasn't he? Yeah, he was one of the first yes. of the many hot men that they kept yes. killing off in that show over and over and over and over again. Yeah, I think he was the Huntsman. He had a lot yeah. of charisma in that, and he actually was in the show. Uh, it's a BBC show with. Um, Julian uh, Anderson called The Fall, and he is a serial killer, and she is a Scotland Yard detective who's come to town to chase him. It's actually really good, but his character is really, like his daytime persona is just this sort of like milk toast man who's, so you would never suspect him. Um, so it's kind of a charisma-less role, but 
makes sense for the purposes of the show. But I guess, you know, Kristen Gray is supposed to be all like, you know, just, he's a, he's a very controlled man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. No pun intended. Yeah. He is lacking something in there, and I don't know if it's someone to play against, good stuff to read. Although the writing in Once Upon a Time isn't that great either. No, but he just had the it factor. Yeah. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just, he seemed to be having fun. Yeah, he did. that's the thing. Yeah. He didn't seem to be having any fun. Yeah, I, I think he, because uh, famously, who's the other guy? Uh, Sons of Anarchy. Charlie Hunnam. Yeah. Hunnam? Hunnam. He pulled out <laughs> 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 he pulled out of the role this movie just I mean it's you can barely speak about it without jizzing all over yes um, if it's publicly known that yes. you were like the fifth guy for yeah. the job I guess it's also hard to get up and <laughs> <laughs> yes it is hard to get up <laughs> for the role if you were the fifth one in line yeah yeah it, it, it's hard yeah like I, it's like the fifth person when you're pulling a train on somebody it's like yeah it's like, oh, God, I've got to so much in here already. Got to make this my own. <laughs> well, maybe the next one will be better because the first one made too much money. So regardless of how terrible a time they obviously seem to have, they're going to make another one. Three books? Yeah. Yeah. Although I, I think if the second one doesn't do well, they might stop. Well, yeah. I mean. What's the safe way to get them to stop making those movies? Um, Hardwick. Oh. Good segue. I know. I was. I, I took that as an opportunity to make a segue. So next week, you and I have a date. We're going to go see uh, In Conversation with Catherine Hardwick at the Box of Light. It's happening on Wednesday, July the 20th. Mm-hmm. Super excited. Uh, wanted to see this for a couple of reasons. Uh, I haven't seen many, or I'm not sure if I've seen any of the In Conversation with series that have featured a woman yet. Well, I've seen none, so no. Well, I, was Spike Lee? That wasn't that wasn't in conversation. No, that was that was. They had an extended Q and A. Yeah, extended Q and A. But I, I've seen Keanu Reeves. I've seen Alfonso Cuarón. I've seen uh, Nick Hornby. I feel like I've gone to at least a couple others since they started doing these little light box. And I don't know if I mean I'm sure they've had women, but just clearly not as frequently. And this is the first one I'm going to get to see. The other reason why I want to do it is so that I could go through the new ticketing process. Well, I mean, the page looks, now that you've actually explored a ticketing option, the page is less vanilla than it was normally. So actually, so do you want to go ahead and give some background on what's happened with the TIFF ticketing process this year? Okay, well, well, let's run everyone back. Uh, let's take you back to the early aughts. Uh, once upon a time, there was a little festival, uh, formerly known as the Festival of Festivals, and the only way to get tickets was to be a film student, basically, and wait in line all night on the ground. Or to be a fool who would do it. Yeah. And take a day off work to do it. Absolutely. And then the, the process became a weird mix of a lottery and... Oh, the lottery. ...payola. So they introduced the sort of tiered member process at the same time that there was also still a paper-based process and a lottery. So... You still had to line up to do certain things, but in order to get your order processed, you just dropped off your tickets in an envelope, and then they numbered boxes, and then they drew a number. Yep, box one through 40. Although... Uh, later years, it got up to 60, I think, or something crazy. But even when they switched from paper to 
uh, a online ordering process, the lottery still exists. You get a window, uh, and it's randomly assigned apparently, but um, you get an email telling you what your window for ordering your tickets is, and it's based on some sort of algorithm or whatever, somebody's idea of a joke. But yeah, you really, it's, it's not first come, first served. Um, it was only truly first come, first serve um, for the first few years that I attended where it really was the first people in line at College Park were the first people to get their ticket orders. Um, but in the, uh, it's weird because in the, I guess, they're playing lip service to egalitarianism and how everyone has a chance, except if you have a lot more money or you're willing to cough up for a membership, then you get treated, so there's, so it's still tiered, so it actually makes it more difficult to be a loser because before all, leave, all losers were equal and now rich losers are, are treated better. Yes. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a loser who won't pay for, for a membership. So I transitioned into membership about a year or two after I was in the first box and I realized I needed to have that feeling again. I think I, I got the first box once, too. I, I almost died. Yeah. I, I was just pulling it up on the blog right now. So in 2009, they drew box 48. And in our theme of double entendres, I even titled a blog entry, Best Box Ever. <laughs> completely innocently. Wouldn't that be box 69? I mean, that's an obvious joke, but... I was, I was just hmm. so happy. I, I'd never had that feeling. And then I realized, oh, wait. Everybody who pays enough to be pro- processed in the advance window is before you is before me and it, it did take a bit of the shine off that box but uh, it, it did help transition me once I was able to sort of kind of afford it into the membership status but yeah that that box process was horrible but kind of exciting the suspense the not knowing did you get your tickets or not what did you get or not <laughs> the sense of sm- smug self-righteousness yeah so that was like the late 2000s up to the early 2010 thir- 12 13 you had a process that was migrating slowly to digital so you would sometimes get an email before the holiday monday Oh, yeah, so that's... But yeah. sometimes you wouldn't. Yeah, the other thing is that uh, TIFF, uh, they fulfill their orders, or you know when you got your tickets. It's always over the uh, Labor Day weekend, long weekend. So you, back in the day, you could not leave town. Yeah. Because once you did get your tickets, your tickets would sort of become available to you, I think, on Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. But if you got a shitty pick, you would have to actually physically exchange your tickets as soon as you got them. And so if you waited to line up to the holiday weekend, then you were in the yeah. line with the rest of the riffraff. Well, I mean, you had to, there were two lines. You had to stand in line to get your, your tickets, and then you had to get in another line to exchange your tickets all on the same day. I mean, it was, it was chaos. I remember one time I went to the Manual Life. Yeah, and, that was the year. Uh, I, can, I stood in line for four hours. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I entered that line sort of a Tessa Thompson color, and I left kind of an Idris Elba color. <laughs> it was hot because it's. It was it was outdoor. That early September sun. Hot. Yeah, it was a long, long day in the sun. It was really, it was rough, and that was I think the year when they really came to a head for them too, that they had to at least start migrating some of those other chunks, especially telling the people who did the advance window before the day before you showed that, up, so that the people who actually got everything or most of everything could like make a decision whether they were going to go down or not so for the next couple of years it was like that like you still had to do some extra steps but the whole getting out of one line and into another like once you got to the front I think two years after that you could just do your exchanges for coupons there 
Oh, yeah, and, and in subsequent years. So if I, well, I mean, that's the other thing, too. I think um, because when the festival um, expanded, when it moved sort of from, uh, from Yorkville uh, downtown mm-hmm. to bigger theaters, they're just, there's more capacity. So I, even if I'm in a box that's picked you know, even close to last, you still do end up getting most of your picks, whereas in the early days, if you were close to the end, you could have like maybe, you know, 30% of your picks, sometimes yeah. less. But now it's very rare when I actually don't get a ticket for a movie. Um, so even if I get kind of, you know, the box number isn't great or my window right. is, is, isn't great, I sort of end up, I can kind of cherry pick and get what I want anyway. a theater capacity thing. You're not dealing with the Cumberland yeah. anymore. Your yeah. smallest theater that you could possibly be seeing a festival movie in would be one of the smaller theaters in Scotiabank now, I think, in yeah. terms of capacity, or Isabel Bader, maybe. Like, the most of the theaters now have the ability to fit, you know, over hundreds of people, or in the case of a Princess of Wales or a Ryerson, you know, you, you'll get in there if you did any sort of advanced ticketing process, for the most part, unless it's a premium, because now they're starting to do it through Ryerson. But that, kids, is a story for another what? week. What? Uh, We're going to talk about premium once the uh, schedule starts to come out, when we do our, our long bets on what movies they're going to make premium and which ones they aren't. If the Ryerson goes premium, then the festival is over. It's Half, over. A quarter of the Ryerson movies are already premium. No, but if it, if it becomes the Elgin where it is just another gala then I don't know who this festival is for. I mean, that's so a dumb question. I'm so naive. I know who it's so for. Go the, so go with the festival. <laughs> I mean... Oh, it's infuriating. It's not inexpensive. It's like, what are these things? It's like, uh, I'll make the analogy of air travel. You could be traveling somewhere. You've paid $1,000 for the service. The airline industry is one of the few industries where you can pay $1,000 and be treated like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... So, so let alone the fact that, you know, you have to have the means to get into the festival or get on that plane. But if you just get in, you are still nothing. And it's really, it's, it's quite, I don't know what it says about, um, well, anything, but, or economics, but it's very, it's very vexing. It's like, I spent, do you know how much money I spent to be here? But no one cares. I mean, if you look at it, uh, to extend your analogy, sort of like Snowpiercer. I mean, yes, there was a whole section of society that didn't even make it on the train. That is true. They just froze. They froze, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, what? You're in the back of the train. You're eating cockroaches. You have a few limbs frozen off as punishment. Consider yourself lucky. You're still on the train. Oh, that's right. They would stick people's limbs right outside the train. Yeah. I have to watch that movie again. Yeah. It was, you know, some of Captain America's best work. It was, actually. I like Chris Pine. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 Evans. 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 I like them both. Yeah. I mean, Chris Pine, we love him because of the single tear during the performance of Glory. Yeah. He'll have an honorary get-up pass forever. And was he wearing a purple suit? I don't know. But he, as long as he keeps his mouth shut and doesn't do anything dumb. Yeah, just yeah. be pretty. Yeah, stay away from Matt Damon. Stay woke. Exactly. Yeah, he's no Matt McGorry. No, but Who I'm, is, really? I'm, even I'm not. Jesse Williams he's is just than me. barely beyond yeah. Matt McGorry. Matt McGorry's super woke. Yeah, I know. I, I don't understand that. What what's his backstory? Like, what has he seen in his life? I mean, he was on the first season of Orange Is the New Black, so maybe he got a consciousness raising from Uzo Aduba and yeah, maybe it's Taylor Schilling. Maybe it's proximity and telling those stories. All those women, all the yeah, time. all those Latina ladies and yeah. all those women of color and living in the margins. Maybe I mean I'm not being facetious, but maybe maybe that had something to do with it. And then going from that to Shondaland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's really been in some you know colored he, lady things. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, Shonda's just, her screening process 
But then how does that explain Kenji's screening process? Because Kenji got on first. Uh, well, I mean, when you look at the makeup of the cast in the first season, um, a couple of the guards were D-bags, but even his character was a relatively nice guy. He was actually the most sensitive of all the guards. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine that Denji Kellan had a hand in, uh, in all of the casting. There's just too many people in the cast, but yeah. because uh, he was a fairly, mm, he's probably high on the call sheet. I would love to know the casting director process for finding woke folk. <laughs> well, maybe we can make a Pixar movie called Finding Woke Folk. It's, yeah. a, it's a sequel to Dory and and uh, Nemo. Yeah, except all of the large, adorable eyes look like Jesse Williams' eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually looks a little bit like Dory's eyes. Well, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back to talk more about the ticketing process and what fresh hell you have to look forward to this year. So, for our date this week, I got to use the new ticketing process for the first time. Took some screenshots. I'll put a couple up on the blog, I think, after the posting, where I go into more detail about the, the thousands of feelings I went through. Primarily frustration, uh, but that's what I was expecting. So, first off... Uh, the but this is also tickets for one event. Right. Uh, okay, that's not encouraging. No, 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 it's going to be terrible. So first off, uh, I've logged in, and the new process is, as we suspected, a manual handshake between the old system and the new system. You have to use your email, create an account, it creates what appears to be a new account, and then they tell you instructions, ignore that, keep your old membership ID. Okay, already confused, good. Yeah, so you do that, you sign in, and now you're in the new interface that looks like a Ticketmaster with all the colors removed in black and white. Yes. With a splash of orange to indicate the timer countdown and informational uh, hover options throughout the experience, but it's mostly black and white and gray. Pretty yeah. difficult to read, not responsive. Yeah. It, it looks great. I mean, you know what it looks like? It looks like a PDF. <laughs> it doesn't look like a web page at all. Well, yeah. I mean, I know it's a screenshot, but it has this flatness that doesn't give any indication that it's primary, that basically doesn't look like it should live online it looks like it should only be a paper document right and from these screenshots you can't tell much like the old site what things are clickable which ones aren't i know because the things that are clickables have words that indicate they should be but the way the text is treated is no different from headings or other things so the headings in the gray bar look exactly the same as you know the ability to edit your cart items or to get more information on the terms of use but those like the text treatments the same but the functions very different so that part of the usability or unusability is still the same as the old site yeah so it's so the call to action is edit yeah submit so i guess they're putting verbs in front of things but it's i mean um i consider myself fairly or actually highly proficient um in such manners, but I mean, I can only imagine somebody who doesn't really spend that much time online and just wants their tickets for the festival. Um, how many pain points are going to be? Like, might somebody do all this and then forget to submit the order? Well, I mean, it's they might, they might not. It's it's weird to me. Even looking at this page, submit order is it's a button, but other items on the page that are calls to action are not buttons. 
Why? Who I, knows? It's a mystery. Yeah, that was yeah, that was a redundant question. <laughs> it's, it's very much a mystery. So the other thing, uh, there were two main fun defects that I ended up actually being glad about. One of the defects, one of the larger ones, it when I got to the end of the process of purchasing these tickets, my payment did not go through. I was not using a Visa card. However, that should not be a prerequisite for a regular event. Yeah, it's uh, and even with the ticketing, if Visa's the preferred card and you get ahead of the line to buy something with a Visa card, well, when the packages come on, it's members first and then Visa card holders and then the rest of um, the great unwash. But yeah, it's not, you, you can use any other kind of card at the festival. Or can you? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So at the end of the process, I got to the end, and I got twice a message that said, uh, your payment's not going through. So I tried with two different cards that are still working for other things. Right. So, listener, don't assume I have bad credit. You're oh, and just FYI, when you one of those screenshots has your credit card number there, I've actually uh, committed it to memory, so you might want to not put that one up online. Yeah, I'll, I'll blur out my details, like <laughs> my address and other things. But yeah, so that was the fun number one defect. The second defect that I didn't even notice because I was so stressed going through the new process was that uh, I wasn't charged the member price. So <laughs> if I didn't have to call to actually order these over the phone, I would have paid double the amount that I should have because of my membership level, I should get a discount. So that was a happy accident. I told the young man on the phone, I don't know if he reported that because he's probably super busy that day processing lots of manual ticket purchases and requests for help to set up accounts. So I'm looking at the ticketing for the in conversations with, what about the ticketing? Well, I guess you just bought a pass. Well, I didn't buy a festival pass yet. Oh, you haven't? No, no. Oh, those okay. go on sale tomorrow. I thought they went on sale oh, the 22nd. Yeah, so the whole setting up your account thing, they did do that. The good thing is they had people do that last week, so if people had problems, they still had time to get it properly set up before the festival packages go on sale. But I'm still tempted to actually go down to the Lightbox tomorrow instead of uh, trying to do it online because uh, the challenge is if the tickets if the process is as broken as it was when I was just trying to buy a regular ticket last week it'll be almost unusable and then if I have to wait till end of business some packages may be off sale however I would like to think that this year some of the packages that normally go off sale early won't be off sale as quickly because it's going to be fucking impossible to buy them yeah I mean I have a the cynic in me uh, has a sneaking suspicion that this site might crash <laughs> <laughs> I'm not hoping that it will, but <clears throat> I wouldn't be terribly surprised. We'll oh, see. Oh, yeah. I got a timeout uh, message at the beginning when I was first logging into. What do you mean you got Or like a, you got to wait. And it wasn't like the same old holding room kind of thing like they had on the oh, other side. Oh, yeah. But it was still something that indicated we can't deal with, you know, 20 people trying to buy tickets to Catherine Hardwick right now. So you have to sort of wait, wait so in a digital kind of waiting. So you're in the digital waiting room, and then when you buy the ticket there is a maximum amount of time that you have to fill that order as well, right? Yeah. So 30 minutes for a single ticket. I don't know what the time is going to be. I would recommend that instead of just giving the straight hour like they normally do, they maybe increase it this year to an hour and a half because as difficult as the old process was to use, we've been sort of trained on how to use it for the past you know, four or five years. This is new, and there's going to be problems with this as well. And also no one knows that this is new. You know because you got access to 
an early beta, right? Uh, I, Mary did actually. I was, but I knew about the early beta because of, of her, her giving right. me the email and showing me right. what it looked like. Yeah. So yeah, people. Some people who maybe ignore all the TIFF emails because it's basically them just asking ask, for money, asking for money, yeah. or like sending out their weekly whatever. People are going to be trying to buy passes tomorrow who may not have even set up their account yet. So that part of the system is for sure going to be overloaded. And in addition, I think the regular passes that usually are off sale within the first couple of days for members, the uh, the gala pass or whatever that's called yesterday, the, or Festival Buzz, I think it was called last year. Oh, good Lord. The douchebag pass. That one may actually not sell out as early this year just because it's going to be almost impossible to buy them. Or they're going to be super, super, super busy at the Lightbox tomorrow. And because historically logistics haven't been their uh, strong suit and it's the first year for the new site i really doubt they've scheduled extra people of at course, the light box no. or have set up an area away from just regular ticket buying so uh it it's going to be a challenge um well i mean you know my thoughts on tiff i don't know why i go it's like being in a what a 18 year old an 18 year long abusive relationship and I keep on going back. But occasionally it makes you feel so good. Yeah, but it's fleeting, and then next year it's the same thing. Yeah, but he only hits you because he loves you. Well, I suppose, but... And when he loves you, he loves you so right. Mm, well, I mean, if that were true... Well, I don't know. I don't even have... I have no way to, to end that, but... Um, I... And I don't know how other festivals operate. Uh, I've thought for a few years that it might be cool to go to Telluride or to go to... Uh, well, probably not Sundance because impossible to get into, really expensive. But even something like uh, the, the ATX um, Festival in Austin, which is a television festival. But just to go somewhere different to see how they do it, to see if it is as difficult, or if maybe Toronto actually does it well. It would actually be nice to think that, you know what, um, this actually isn't that bad. And it's, it's possible. I mean, I don't know how, how other festivals uh, organize their ticketing process. So, um, yeah. It would be, I'd like to try at least one other one, although I do think one of the things that we don't appreciate as much is that we do get a lot of things at our festival where it's their first time being shown ever or first time in North America. America, yeah. And that uh, just the, there is actual diversity in our festival. Like, there's a lot from all over the world. And you can see a lot of films that normally wouldn't get to be seen in you know, some of the venues they get shown in here with a, you know, packed or mostly packed house. And you get to really see films that will never find their audience for one night only. Uh, the filmmakers, especially, I love it when it's like, you know, a young filmmaker from like some random place and it's a packed audience and like it's a really heated Q&A. And you realize they're having probably one of the best nights of their life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I absolutely love the festival. I mean, uh, despite how uh, it's become a lot more unwieldy and a lot more corporate over the last few years. But when the lights do go down and you're sitting in a theater, it is exciting. But um, it just, I don't know, it just seems like it's something that is at this magnitude. It's been around for, what, 30 years? Yeah. That it should be running like a finely tuned machine, and it just, it, and it just isn't. Um, actually, so I'm just going to switch tack a little bit. But looking at the screen, it says mobile entry. So does this mean that you're tickets get delivered to your phone allegedly i haven't actually tried to download the ticket on my phone because i don't even know how i'd log into this through my phone 
I, I don't know if I got an order confirmation to let me add something to my passbook yet. I haven't tried that part yet. I'm kind of saving that for next week. Yeah, I'm curious about what the fulfillment will be because... Um, well, we're going on Wednesday, so... But... But I don't know if the way they set it up, where it's all weird with Ticketmaster, if I go mobile entry, which I did pick on purpose... Will they, yeah, will they charge you for that? Will I get charged if I try to print my ticket because right. the mobile entry doesn't work? But that's another thing. Like, I work close enough that I can experiment with this first one. And Yeah, and I can't imagine that for the festival proper this will be an option because they don't scan tickets at the festival but they might this year with this oh, okay thing. i would <laughs> okay i would be i would i don't even know what i would bet yeah well, uh, we but to, that's never gonna happen we need to befriend a volunteer because that's if they're training them on how to use scanners then that would be our way of knowing ahead of time i suppose but then what are they going to scan them in to they don't even have the infrastructure and all these you know we have a lot of theaters that just that aren't even like the Ryerson, for instance, is, you know, it's not a, it's not part of, um, like, a chain. It just is this independent theater. So I would be shocked. It would be great if they could scan, but I don't think that's going to happen. They would need to have so many devices. They would need to have so many chargers for those devices. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's another thing. Even if I was the company working with them, I would have probably, unless I was a festival attendee, grossly underestimated the amount of scanners that they would have needed to onboard people because these aren't like regular events or even regular movies. It's not even like a concert where you sort of have people line up early and then people who trickle in over time because there's opening acts and what's not. It is, you know, these are events where you're trying to onboard and offload thousands of people all at once. Yeah, in a very short window. Yeah, so that you can, you know, have, you know, six or however many movies that you show at the Ryerson within a day. So... This is going to be a problem if they went for scanners, but they didn't accurately estimate not just the amount that they need, but that they need a way to charge them and they need to have them refreshed. Like, like in between movies that they may not be able to fully charge up one of the devices that they used for the movie before. So they need to have like double the amount of devices for every venue that you would need to have, let's say, two volunteers on every sort of major entry point. Plus, like if you have people scanning to go let's say up at the Ryerson in the balcony right. or if you have multiple entry points it's going to be a bit of a shit show and then for those venues where they insist on having their own staff like the Elgin and Princess of Wales the the scanning process there will be even more onerous um, I mean I I can like I said I doubt that there'll be any scanning in place I would be shocked but also when you have there has to be a way to prevent multiple printings of a ticket or if you print it you can't actually have a hard copy. Um, so in the past, you would go and you would get one copy of a ticket that couldn't be duplicated. So if you lost your ticket in the past, you were screwed. Yeah, somebody else could pick it up and use it, but... And you could not ask for another one. Exactly. So how are they going to ensure that there's no counterfeiting or duplication of tickets? So uh, it, it would have to be scannable, yeah. or they're going to disable yeah, this part be. of the ticketing process yeah. for the festival so that you still have to go get your hard tickets. Yeah, I'm, it's curious. I'm strangely excited to see what's going to happen. I think it'll be a disaster. I'm, yeah. I'm thrilled. <laughs> yeah. Like That's another reason why I kind of wanted to restart uh, the podcast this week, because I want to follow this ticketing process all the way through this year. To its inevitable painful conclusion. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not going to be, it's no social network, folks, but it's going to be a really uh, nerdy digging deep onto something that's super boring except for people that know about it. We've been it. through it a million, a million, yeah. million, a million times. And we've been through the different versions of it. So 
it'll be good to see how good or bad or terrible this new process is. Yeah, probably mostly terrible. Definitely mostly terrible. Yeah. It'll be a no good, terrible, very bad day when the actual process of how you buy your tickets and use them is explained, especially if, to your point, there is not an ability to print, but they don't maybe even properly disable all of this on the online side. Because who knows? Maybe it's not their intention, but by default, it's all there still. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's probably built into the DNA of Ticketmaster. Uh, um, but I mean, I haven't been to a big venue in a really long time, so I don't even know how Ticketmaster scans. It's scary. Just because it's unproven, and the partner that they've chosen is dubious. So, uh, you know, I wish them well, but I'm really, I'm kind of interested. I'm going to have to follow uh, all this on Twitter tomorrow to see what goes down. The website, I believe we predicted what goes down will be (laughs) the website. Exactly. (laughs) There's probably a room for another Fifty Shades joke in there. Yeah. And we'll be back. All right, so our final segment will be what we'll be watching. What we have watched, what we are watching? Yeah. So I'll start. Uh, I am in the midst, well, not the midst, I'm at the beginning of watching Stranger Things, which is the new Netflix series with Winona Ryder. Uh, Very interesting. I mean, I love Winona Ryder, um, and I'm glad to have her back, but uh, I don't know if you've heard any of the reviews of this series and the praise that has been heaped upon her. Um, I'm going to say her performance is a little bit shaky for me. It's very wiggy. She's wearing a lot of corduroy, a lot of layers, but it seems as though she's acting. Um, As I said, this is, uh, I think I'm four episodes into a, I think it's 10 or 13 episodes. So maybe she gets better. I mean, it's kind of, it's a role that we've seen before. It's a distressed mother whose son has gone missing. So she is distraught. But I don't buy her when she's distraught, which is kind of, kind of makes the work a little bit hard to, I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. Um, the show itself, I mean, production values are great for the most part. The kid actors are really, really good. Um, but um, I don't know. It's Netflix has a lot of money. They have a lot of original series. And I think a lot of people still tend to overpraise them for work that is mediocre to good, it automatically gets a stamp of really good. Um, once again, I mean, you know, I'm one person. I think part of that, too, is the industry that loves and praises them so much because people who work in the industry are happy to work with this place that lets them do things they wouldn't normally get to do, cast people they wouldn't normally get to cast, and tell stories that are interesting, but it isn't, you know, a high-concept, super-hot, 10-second elevator pitch concept. So the, the love of Netflix is partially because this is a place where people are getting to see things that they don't always have to see. So whether it's great or not, even as a critic, I would like Netflix just because it's not the same old thing. Well, I get that to a point, but because we are in the never-ending golden age of television, uh, the bar has been raised so high um, and this is just a bit of a tangent, but the Emmy nominations just came out and there was, uh, I think it was reading Vulture or something, and there was a comment. And basically, um, so the, the, the article was about Emmy snubs and who got nominated and how great it was. And, uh, you know, now we even have, like, 
a web series Horace and Pete getting nominated. So the person who commented took the um, the television writers to task for talking about all of these television shows that aren't on networks and how a lot of people can't afford to have every single premium ca- uh, premium cable channel and Hulu and Netflix, which I get that, but it doesn't mean that those shows aren't better. Like, are you supposed to say that it should be, uh, I don't know, what's that show with all those, um, uh, with all those people and they're in a family? Modern Family. <laughs> That's the one. Blackish, fresh That's off one. the boat. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. no, Modern Family. So does that yeah. mean that we have to keep on nominating Modern Family and uh, one with those nerds? As you can tell I don't want to let that. Silicon want, Valley? No, no, that one's okay because that one's on cable, the other one. Uh, Mr. Robot? Oh, no, Big Bang Theory. Okay. Big yeah. Bang Theory. Those nerds. Yeah. Right. yeah. But it's but it's ridiculous. It's like the argument can't be just because it's not accessible doesn't mean that it's not quality. So I guess that's my long-winded way of saying that, yeah, it's a decent show, but there's so many, many better shows um, that I feel like Stranger Things doesn't really amount to more than a than a B, B minus some episodes. Once again, I mean, I could you know, uh, once I go back home and binge the rest of it, it could completely change. But at this point, I'm like, eh, it's okay, but not great. Um, and so, do you want to tell me what you've been watching? I've been watching a lot of stuff, but I could talk for days. I. Don't watch as much as you in the summer. I'm still, right now, I'm still recovering from the loss of Thrones, right? I'm still very much uh, thinking about Game of Thrones most days. I, I've almost <laughs> most run days. out of... Most days? I'm running out of podcasts to listen to. I'm about going, Game of Thrones, all right? Yeah. Not in general. Yeah, about yes. Game of Thrones specifically. I feel like with everything going on in the world right now, now more than ever... We need them Thrones? Yeah, we need them Thrones. We need uh, Thrones, y'all. Yeah. Sorry, that's the. Uh, yeah, I know that's the. Hashtag. That is the Black Twitter approved hashtag for Game of Thrones. Yeah, it, it just it, it suits something in me, and you know, seeing comeuppance as well, because in the real world, uh, so many times, people do horrible things, often with witnesses, and there's uh, nary a consequence. But on Game of Thrones, maybe maybe it'll take three seasons, but eventually someone will get possibly. Maybe maybe not. That's the beauty of it too: is that yeah. you cannot count on someone getting what they deserve. But when they do? Yeah, it's normally punishment befitting the crime. Or even exceeding the crime yeah. in some cases. <laughs> well, deterrence. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. So some characters that you don't like, once you see bits peeled off them slowly, all of a sudden you're rooting for them again. Oh, yeah. yeah bits like a peeled great off yeah, or, exactly. or, or quickly removed in right. the case of uh, 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 Lannister Hand. It, it's, it's just a show that makes me kind of believe that you know, people will get uh, some kind of course correction in their life. Maybe not the way they're hoping for, maybe not the way we're hoping for, but eventually something will happen. And it it, it gives me faith. Even though it's not the real world, and it's a horrible world, yeah. I feel like it actually is, in a way, more comforting uh, than the real world right now. And, and for people who watch Game of Thrones, you may think, that's dark. And I'm going to say, well, so's the news right now. Yeah, and Game of Thrones is one of these shows um, that doesn't have... There is no other show like it on television. I mean, I say that about a lot of things, um, but there is no substitute for the show. So uh, 
say something like Rectify, which is a fantastic slow burn show. There is, it's, it's another show. There is nothing like it. When it's off the air, there is nothing that makes me feel the same way. There are other shows that are fun and engaging, and you know when they're on, I, I love them, but they can be replaced next week with something else. Um, but those shows sort of stand alone as being um, very much outside of what anyone else is doing on television. Um, and I mean, it was the best season by far for me. I, I've loved the show from the beginning, but season six transcended um, anything that the show has ever done before. Uh, and I know it's weird. Some people think because the show is really firing on all cylinders that they can't possibly stick the landing. My attitude is the opposite. They're, they've shown that they can take a show and sort of winnow it down to its essence after six years of expanding. It's finally contracting. And I feel like in the next, and unfortunately, we're only going to have another 13, 13 episodes, which is, yeah, I was hurts. I was yeah. counting on 20. Um, and when I heard it was only going to be 13, I was devastated. But um, if anyone can land a show on a tiny, tiny little landing strip, I feel like uh, Weiss and Benioff can do it and are starting to prove that the end is in sight. Yeah. And even some of the big swings they've taken that have diverged quite a bit from the book, uh, Sansa's storyline, I'd say would be one of those where when they started on that path, I was I was not with it. Uh, I feel like now they've definitely positioned her and other parts around that story in a way to make that whole bit a lot more interesting. And again, just in terms of budget and time, like instead of having a whole other character or a whole other series of characters be part of that story that we just saw, you know, you bring somebody else that we already know and care about. You don't have to, you know, build up other characters and make us interested in them. And odds are most of those other characters would die anyway. So why not just keep us with the people that we know um, just in terms of uh, an economy of storytelling that, you know, obviously maybe George didn't have to have because he was building not just a world, a universe almost to a certain extent over decades. But these guys have to, like, finish telling the story. Like, they've got, you know, wives to get home to. and you Yeah, know. you got an Amanda Pete put a baby into. Yeah, you, you have other things to do besides, you know, swan around the globe and, you know, talk about your horse master and how many horses they had for this battle and everything else. Like, it's been a great time, but I'm sure they're going to be... It, it's going to be bittersweet, but it's not going to be like other shows when you see people in the interviews or the outtakes and the extra features, you know, crying on the last day and hugs and whatever. I mean, yes, I'm sure people will feel that. But first of all, so many people in the main cast have said goodbye to people over and over again over the last five years from, you know, season one to now. So it's not that same feeling of, oh, no, it's my last day of shooting on, like, the third Lord of the Rings. And, you know, the only person we had to say goodbye to was Sean Bean. But yeah, <laughs> he's yeah, used to that. Yeah. No, the cast has rolled over several times. Yeah. And, and they still hang out. Like, the ones that are going to be friends anyway still hang out. The ones who, you know, ended up getting something else are mm-hmm. moving on to something else. But you see them pop up now and again with them at, you know, events and everything else. So I don't think it's going to be that same level of emotion. I think it will be emotional for some of them, but definitely in terms of the extremes of weather, the costumes, the wear and tear, like all of that, I don't think it'll be the same kind of bittersweet kind of sadness that you see when you see people on like their last day, you know, in the bar cheers or their last day, you know, well, I'm not going to talk about it. 
other shows. But yeah, like it's just, it's going to be different for them. And what I do, um, and I guess this isn't a point I've ever actually thought about, but uh, there are a lot of shows where um, some people in the cast may be weaker than others, or someone may just be an out-and-out bad actor, or at least what I perceive to be a bad actor. What as can, a human or on... No, as, okay. as, as a human. Okay. Not a bad actor in terms of morality, but someone who really can't act for shit. Um, but Game of Thrones, uh, and they must have a magnificent um, casting director, uh, and they have you know this huge pool of British talent, mostly British talent. But I cannot think of any actor, and I'm talking about minor actors too, um, with the exception of maybe a couple of the Sand Snakes, um, the ones who aren't uh, Indira Varma or the girl from Whale Rider, the other two girls I'd never seen before, but they're sort of saddled with thankless roles. But even a character who I can't stand, Gilly, um, the actress is, she's doing her job. And it's quite amazing that, you know, six episodes, or sorry, six seasons, God knows how many characters have had speaking parts on Game of Thrones, and nobody ever rings, I, I guess that's the point, no one ever rings false. No one seems out of place or out of time on the show. And because it is, you know, an historical fantasy, you always run into the problem where someone might be too modern for the role, but they haven't run into that problem. Everyone seems like they're from Westeros. And in the case of some of those characters that maybe don't get as much screen time or as much time to talk where mostly their job is to react to a major character from one of the big families like a Pip or a Gren even in their moments you know reacting to you know John being John which is being either heroic or dumb or heroically dumb they both gave really good performances and Ed this season yeah he really stepped up Ed was amazing Ed had so much to do with looking beleaguered and bedraggled but does he not look like a broken Ben Foster to you? Yeah, but just the fact that a character named Dolorous Ed, and they found the most Dolorous Eddie person of all to play that guy. He just looks like he's just having a bit of a bit of a sulk, but not as <laughs> not as brooding as John. Yes, he's stroppy. I guess I think is the English word for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's like you already have signed up for life for one of the shittiest jobs in the realm, and then on top of it, you've joined at a real. I'm going to say time of transition. It's like you became a corporate mortgage broker in 2007. I don't know when that when everything fell apart, but that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. I I finally watched The Big Short, so yeah, that sounds about right. And you had, you know, it it was a rough onboarding, but you know, you knew what you were doing, and you had a few good days, and you had your buddies, and the next thing you know, it's actually all falling apart. And how do you react to it? I mean, there's mutiny, there's madness. Or in the case of Ed, it's just like, ugh. He just has this what the fuck's going to happen today look on his face all the time. He doesn't get a lot of lines, but I just love the way when something else crazy happens, he seems to react but not overreact because for the dullest Eds of the world, they know tomorrow's probably worse. I love how when I asked you what you were watching, you went on a 90-minute tangent about Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still very attached. Well, no, as I, I completely, I completely get it. I mean, I honestly can't watch anything else really that requires a lot of thought or attention right now because I just keep wanting to go back to Westeros. I mean, yesterday or today, I think they had a run on uh, Hillary Duff, uh, so Cinderella Story and uh, Raise Your Voice were on. But these TV. movies that yeah. Hillary Duff, oh, I never heard of them. Exactly. 
I was like, I'll just give this a watch. Because Chad Michael Murray's in one of them. I love him. That doesn't make it better. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. But it does make me sometimes want to go back to, if not watch an entire episode of One Tree Hill, watch an episode from one of the early seasons and just marvel at, you know, I never quite expected most of them would end up where they are. Actually, he was fairly decent in the first episode, uh, first season, sorry, of uh, of um, Peggy Carter. Oh, Agent yeah, Carter. he Agent was Carter. great. He yeah, was he was great actually good. That. Yeah, and he was good at the very end. In the middle, he made his character sort of one-note bad boss. Yes. But, yeah, he was good but in he, the... Yeah, he ended up a hero. Yeah. But yeah, back to the Emmy nominations. Uh, as I'm sk- skimming through the list, even Unreal, I was watching Unreal, and then I think this season is as excited as I was to see the black suitor and everything else. Yeah. I don't like that they so quickly ruined what I found was the best relationship, which was the relationship between the two women. Oh, you mean between Quinn and uh, Rachel? And Rachel? Yeah. So, like, I know last season their baby was, and their relationship was problematic, but I really looked at them as, like, the core relationship. Oh, yeah, it, that is. And it, then this season. They, they are the, that is a love story, is, yeah. is them. And that for this season, so early in the season, they, they put a major rift in there for them. I, they could have saved that for season three. Yeah, and the show does work better when they are scheming together. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really like the first year, the first season of Unreal. I've enjoyed the second one less um, for a few reasons. It was strange. The first season, it actually did seem as though... It was you were actually watching every behind the scenes of a reality dating show. This season, I feel like I'm watching a TV show about behind the scenes of a reality TV show. The difference being that it seems though they're winnowing down the contestants very quickly, or maybe they had fewer, or the women are less interesting than uh, than the ones they had last year. But it feels as though the show is more. Um, it's less about the show behind the show, and it's more about the characters relationships. So you have uh, Quinn, who's dating um, Yoan Griffith. You have the new relationship between Rachel and the new showrunner. You have this weird stuff with Chad and his kid uh, and Jeremy. It's, I think they've decided to give all the characters their own B and C plots. Whereas last year, I found that the show, by the show, I mean Everlasting, that was the A plot. And this season, it's not the A plot all the time. Yeah. And, I mean, last season they did have sort of that early Bachelor thing of the actors who were playing the suitor and the chosen one actually ended up together in real life, which is just crazy to me still. <laughs> I I don't know how they... It, it is magic. It, it's actually... Their, their average is still better than the actual Bachelor franchise based on that. That is true. That's actually one love match that, uh, that continues from... Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, for the Emmys this year, I'm most excited about uh, Titus Burgess. I did watch all of the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt second season, and he continues to get asked to do more and more ridiculous things. I don't know if it's that Tina Fey really loves black people or really, like, does think that they are just magical. <laughs> and the thi- you think of some of the things that Tracy Morgan Jordan did over yeah. the years of Dirty Rock, and not not only didn't break character, but sort of leaned into the point where that persona became this whole other entity, and Titus is very much doing something similar and yet very different all at once, and that they, at the same point, have him doing performances from his past lives 
as uh, I think a geisha. Yes, as a geisha. But then also having a, his first serious relationship, relationship yeah. Mikey, and going to you know family dinner at the boyfriend's house. That is, and and in both he completely sells it, lands it, and they're both they both end with like emotional and funny moments. Yeah, I mean. I- uh, my take on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is that every character on that show is a cartoon, so Titus is no more outsized to me than Kimmy herself is. Uh, the episode where she had that off-brand, uh, like, hits of today cassette, the way that she would contort her face when she was driving in the car singing, it was unbelievable. It's like she looks like a cartoon character, but she completely sells it because she has zero... Um, affect. Well, not even affect, <laughs> but she has she has zero like there. There's no artifice to her performance. It's so open. Uh, so it's Kimmy's is incredibly sincere. So she can pull off like just being incredibly goofy in ways that I think a more self conscious actor wouldn't be able to do it. And then under best supporting actress, I'm really rooting for Kay McKinnon. I she has made. I mean, this iteration of Saturday Night Live right now, it's finally starting to almost become relevant and funny in parts again. But Kate McKinnon came out of the world of, you know, the logo sketch comedy. Yeah, the big gay sketch show. Yeah. And has just, I don't even know, it's, it, every, every sketch, every moment with her, she's just so watchable. Even in the bad sketches, where I think that's, where when people kind of romanticize the early cast of Saturday Night Live, they don't go back and ever try to watch a full episode. You go back and you watch a land shark, or you go back and you watch, you know, a cowboy, but you don't actually go back and try to watch an entire episode beginning to end. And most of those were just as, you know, rough to slog through as Mm -hmm. they are now. But for her, as soon as she pops up, she's just infinitely watchable. Like, she looks like she's having fun and she'll try to make you have fun at least once even if it's in a terrible premise and a terrible sketch yeah i'm guessing that kate mckinnon is always trying to make her her scene partners laugh like that just seems like it wouldn't call it mugging but when she delivers a line there is this little look that she gets on her face after because she knows how ridiculous it is so it's like she's in on the joke but i don't know uh i haven't really watched saturday night live with any regularity since god knows when and uh, quick fact about me is I hate the Emmys. I have not watched the Emmys for about 15 years um, because it's always the same. So it was a lot of black ladies last year. Yeah, I mean, and there were some great, you know, some fantastic people have won over the years, and this year the nominees look great, but I have almost zero interest in the outcome. Um, I imagine I'll be disappointed and happy the next day when I find out about them. But I don't know, it's it, it, just the nature of television is that you're always rewarding someone for work that they did a year ago. It just, because television is so immediate, when Emmy noms come out, it's so much after the work has been done, presuming that the people actually watch the tapes and don't just watch the most recent episode of The Americans and say, this looks good. But um, it doesn't have the immediacy of, well, not even the Oscars, but the Oscars are about one piece of work. It's about two hours of work, not about... 10 hours of work that you did last year so uh, they always kind of fall flat with me I am going to say also as somebody who is a fan of all the firsts that are happening that are you know about moving forward in progress 
I am glad that Hillary didn't win last time, not just because Obama, but because without her having lost, we wouldn't get to see Kate McKinnon do something entirely different. Like so many times when the cast changes over, but a political figure stays the same, the next uh, person to take it over is different and not necessarily, if they're better, it's because of maybe something that the person's done in the public eye that this person gets to um, mimic or latch onto. If they're worse, then you always think, oh, I wish we had, you know, somebody else back. Or if they're completely, you know, so remarkable and so perfect and so bang on in the case of a Tina Fey and that woman from Alaska. Oh, then yeah. Sarah Palin. That's you just have yeah, to keep bringing to be. that person back. But Kay McKinnon and Amy Poehler both had Greg Hillary's. But they're very different. They're very different. They're very different calories, but I love both of them. And none of them, I'm like, th- there are uh, two different types of impersonations on SNL. There's one like Tina Fey, which is, it is note perfect. She looks like her, she sounds like her. And then, you know, or like a Daryl Hammond as Bill Clinton. It's, you know, if you close your eyes, sometimes you think it's the same person. Or you might have a Chevy Chase as Gerald, uh, Ford. As Gerald Ford. There's nothing, <laughs> except he fell down a lot. <laughs> Uh, and although I think Amy Poehler and Kate McKinnon are more in the Chevy Chase school, they actually get, there's something really funny about the fact that neither one of them looks or acts or seems like Hillary to me. It makes it, they can, they have a little bit more latitude, whereas Tina Fey, like she kind of, even though she's really, really funny, um, it ends up being um, sort of an impersonation rather than an interpretation. Yeah. I think is, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but they both did like manage to land the slightly murderous glint that Hillary can get in her eye. Yeah, <laughs> which I I think that's one of the best things about her. That's sort of one of the key things, along with you know Obama's pauses, and you know with the falling of the four, like the the way she looks, you know, like in one moment, uh, kind of adorable businesswoman in a pantsuit, and then the next moment, like she could actually kill you with her bare hands. And then you can see sometimes with real Hillary and impersonation Hillary, the moment where they have to decide, I need to look less terrifying right now and dial it back. It's more funny when it's real Hillary, but I like it when it's uh, Kate McKinnon as well. I think the one opportunity that was missed is they need to have Steve Harvey as the host and have a sketch where he and Hillary go shopping for suits. Oh, my God. Yep. Can you please? Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. At uh, there has to be like a his and hers dress, like uh, I don't even know what regulation length that is. And maybe Shaq could show up. Oh, and then they have to both come out in the same color of yep. blue. Yep. And Elizabeth Warren shows up. Yep. Yep. And Shaq. Like, yeah. And Shaq is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the pinstripe, same suit, but pinstripe. So yeah. Oh my God, please! I need that to happen. I need that to happen in my life. If not, actually on the show, on some sort of web series, can somebody do that? That color blue is really hot right now. I'm actually looking at a variation yeah. of it on uh, Carrie, Carrie Washington as Anita Hill. I didn't watch that. Neither did I. I mean, I was kind of uh, biopicked out because I, I went deep on uh, OJ and I loved it, but well, it was it was grueling. I heard it wasn't um, all that good. Although the I mean, People versus OJ? No, no, no. Uh, the uh, the documentary. Uh, no, I no, didn't. no, no. Confirmation. Oh, okay. No, uh, both the People versus OJ. And the uh, and the thirty for thirty um, uh, were magnificent. They are great companion pieces. Uh, I didn't think that I was ready for more OJ after watching um, American Crime, American Crime Story. But um, 
the 30 for 30 seven and a half hour documentary was amazing and it made you realize how much they got right about the miniseries except for the casting of Cuba Gooding Jr. who is the only person who did not he just he didn't he wasn't OJ uh, but everybody else was amazing but yeah uh, Conviction uh, by all accounts wasn't that great he wasn't OJ but it was honestly some of his best acting that I've yeah. seen in years and in those moments of him trying to convince others because he truly believed himself uh, that he'd done nothing wrong and you know what let's even leave the murder out of it the fact that he you know beat his wife and it was well known and he he talked about how they would you know tussle yeah and other things that those were honestly some of the more uh, chilling moments where I was I forgot I was watching you know Cuba trying to be OJ or anything else and I just was like very disturbed at listening to a man honestly be convinced that uh, a professional a former professional football player should ever be tussling with you know his wife or any other person yeah to the point that you leave you know visible marks on them and they need to call the police and that that's just okay yeah I just found that I mean he got the the petulance and the exasperation down he just didn't have I mean in, there, there was something about OJ. I mean, even watching, you know, the documentary where you see him at various stages in his career and, you know, knowing what happened and even watching him after the murders, you know, you're watching it and you're like, oh, my God, he's so handsome. <laughs> he was. And really that handsome. is as much as it shouldn't matter. It does matter. And OJ is a much uh, more attractive man than Cuba. And I think that was a missing piece too because you have to be able to understand why people wanted him to get away with it or wanted to believe that he couldn't do it and I don't think that Cuba was the right person to fill those shoes um but I mean you know that's like small potatoes it was a magnificent miniseries but um you know and that's like one small part and quite frankly it's um I do find it odd that he's uh the lead in the Emmys uh whereas uh, the other, so Courtney B. Vance and uh, John Travolta and Sterling K. Brown are all in for supporting, when arguably they all had the same amount or more screen time than he did. But um, I guess they're trying to maybe give, obviously Cuba is not going to get an Emmy against any of them, so, um, and because he is, you know, arguably the biggest star on the TV show. Well, well, it's not called the people versus Johnny Cochran. Yeah, so maybe they decided to you know to throw him a bone and give him uh, a nod in the lead, um, in the neat slot, in the neat sl- in the in the, in the lead slot. And, yeah, 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 in the lead slot. I mean, I feel like he's not going to win, but I feel like it should be Courtney B. Vance, and you know, if Paulson. Gets yeah, Paulson's it. lead. Yeah, but Paul. Vance is not, which doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that is. This is why. See, this is why I don't like the Emmys. It's a bunch of but he fuckery. Is, he is part of like a large defense team, whereas it's mostly her and the guy who plays Christopher Darden. But it's about. It's not about who they are in real life, though. It's about the, the. The categorization. Yeah, like and the, about you know how big their their performance is and how much airtime they have. And it, it may just be possible too that because Courtney B. Vance's performance was so incredible, it seemed as though he were on. It, it may seem as though he was on screen more than he actually was. I think that is it, too. Yeah, that could, that could be it. All right. Well, 
looking forward to not watching the Emmys. Yes. And being angry for no real good reason afterwards because more and more the Emmys mean less and less. However, uh, I did share with you this week that in you know ongoing struggles in the world, one of the best things that happened last week was Maisie Williams' reaction on Twitter to her nomination. Which yes. was just a bunch of, you know, OMG, WTF, <laughs> wait, what's, that were just actually adorable. Well, she is 18 and she acts 18, which is refreshing. It is. It is. And yet she, as an actor, she was good to start with and has gotten, like, very good. Yeah, both she and uh, Kit Harrington and... Um, Sophie Turner. Sophie Turner. Uh, the last season especially have really, uh, their game has really, really improved. Um, and Sophie Turner and Kit Harrington opposite each other are way better than they are on their own. Um, and, I mean, I don't know how much uh, experience any of them had before. I mean, I, I know Nikolai Coster-Waldo and Lena Headey and Charles Dance and... Um, uh, Lane Cunningham... And the guy who plays Tyrion. But yeah, some of the, uh, well, actually, a lot of the other cast Peter members Jinklage, are, are yeah. were largely unknown. So they have really grown into their roles, too. Yeah. But yeah, the, the child actors on that show, especially, they uh, have gotten amazing. But in their real lives, they seem to have somehow remained people. Yeah, like Isaac Hempstead, right? Uh, you know, pictures with him, and I'm going to say Kieran Nuren. I think that's the guy who plays, uh, who plays Hodor. Like, yeah. like they hang out and they hang out. Like in the year they were yeah. off, I think they yeah. just hung out together. Yeah. yeah. They're like, okay, you're going to DJ a set, I'll come down. Why not? I'll go to Iceland. Yeah, I'll hang out, lift a few pints while you're spinning a set. He's probably not even from Iceland. Yeah. I don't know where he's from. No, no, I don't know. But, uh, oh, and in other fun upcoming things, uh, Fast and Furious 8 will mm-hmm. have uh, the guy who plays Tormund Giants Bane. So I'd less than no interest in that movie. I don't know the last time I saw or if I've seen any of those in the theater, but now I kind of really want to, depending on how much screen time he's purported to have. And uh, Imperator Furiosa herself is going to be in this movie. Jesus. Yes, so Charlize Theron has signed on for this movie. So it's because, I don't understand this franchise. I mean, I watched the first two or three, and they were all shitty, <laughs> but it isn't what it was. No. Ever since Vin Diesel came back, this is something completely... Oh, you know what? I did watch the one where they were in Brazil, and they were dragging around a safe. It was some sort of. It was awful. So these movies still aren't for me, but they are attracting bigger and bigger talent. It's really strange to me. I think it's just like famous people who want to drive nice cars fast and look cool and be part of a cool crew. Is Helen Mirren going to be in it? Because I know she said she wanted uh, to in some interviews, and then I may have heard something crazy like she may actually be in it. Yeah, I heard her name. Uh, in reference to it, too, but I don't know if it was legit or just something that she would do. I mean, of course she would do it. She was in red, for God's sake. But, uh, yeah, it's there's sort of... It's like this movie's like the opposite of The Expendables. It's like they get really talented people to be in this movie about nonsense. Yeah. Instead of washed up, um, you know... Uh, did they do a woman's Expendables, or is that in my mind? Maybe that was one of those nightmares slash dreams you had. No, I swear to God, it was going to be Gia Carana and probably Ronda Rousey, but I'm sure there was going to be an all-females um, Expendables. And, um, yeah, and it was called The Expendables. No. Yes, but I don't know whatever happened. It may still be in, in pre-production for all I know, but Is yeah. Is Bridget Muslin still around? Uh, she must be. Yeah, she was married to Flavor Flav or dating him or something. Okay. But yeah, no, it, that was going to be a thing. We're going down a real rabbit hole, folks. Yeah. We're, we're going to go do some Googling about things that uh, sound, frankly, terrifying to me. And All uh, true. 
hopefully uh, this episode will be up and uh, apologies not apologizing for the sound it's going to be a little bit different as we're going to have a mobile show on the road and we will be having Jay back but uh, as we go through the ticketing process Mel and I will be telling you of our adventures with the Box of Light this year so next week we'll have our post Catherine Hardwick as well as uh, my post having tried to and probably failed at buying my package online. So thanks again, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week. We're out.